Now, we're studying the little book of Habakkuk tonight, and uh, I told him in church last night, several folks asked me about it, I said, we're studying the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I didn't say tabacky, I said Habakkuk, amen? It's afraid everybody would come in with a pouch of Levi Garrett and think they was ready for it. But the little book of Habakkuk, three chapters, uh, there in the Old Testament, and uh, in the canonical order, it follows the book of Nahum. So uh, it's just right there after the little book of Nahum. If you can find it, you can find Nahum. And if you remember where we were last week, in the canonical order, it's right before the book of Zephaniah. So that's not necessarily the order that they go in chronologically, but canonically, that's the order that they go in. In other words, the order that they are in the King James Bible. Well, the book of Habakkuk is wholly different than any of the other books that we've studied. Uh, it's a very introspective book. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't look outside, but it does a lot more looking inside than it does outside. And Habakkuk is dealing with a problem in his mind, in his life, and in his country. And he's got to come to terms with how to deal with this and how to reconcile this. Uh, I'll say this about the Word of God. I, I don't have all the answers. But that doesn't mean that there aren't answers. And so when there's something that we need an answer on, we ought to look for the answer. There's nothing wrong with that. Some folks have an attitude sort of like uh, the Samaritan woman had. You know, she wasn't even born again. Uh, When she said this, she said that uh, when the Messiah shall come, he'll tell us all things. And some folks, that's how they look at studying the Bible. Well, why bother? I might find something I don't understand. One of these days I'll die and go to heaven, then I'll understand it. You're robbing yourself when you do that. And so there's certainly nothing wrong with trying to search these things out. And that's what Habakkuk is doing in this little book of Habakkuk. So let's uh, read our introduction material there in front of you. I, I joked uh, with, with several of them a second ago that this is the uh, one of the shortest books that we that we deal with, and it has the longest outline, uh, at least that elaborated outline is. And so I squeeze that simple outline onto the back of the page, and that is what we'll follow tonight is that, that simple outline. The introductory material begins this way. It says, Habakkuk has been called the Doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He seems to have been more concerned with solving a problem than with delivering a prophecy. Actually, there was little need for another major prophet when a man of Jeremiah's stature was holding center stage. The prophecies of Jeremiah were passionate enough, persistent enough, and penetrating enough to suffice. But since God has declared that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, Isaiah was supported by Micah and Hosea, Jeremiah was supported by Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Ezekiel. Nahum had comforted Judah with assurance that the Assyrians would be overthrown. But Habakkuk joined Jeremiah in warning their countrymen of the coming of the Chaldeans to punish Judah for her sins. The rising power of the Babylonians filled Habakkuk's vision. There is a wide difference of opinion about when Habakkuk ministered. The opinions range from as early as Manasseh to as late as Jehoiakim. About Habakkuk himself we know very little. Some scholars think that the last verse of his book indicates that he was a Levite. Uh, The only other information we have about the prophet is his name, but that certainly is significant, for Habakkuk means to embrace and to wrestle. And in his book, Habakkuk does both. He wrestles with God and then by faith embraces his promises. He also embraces the wayward people of Judah. His great ministry was to take the people of Judah into his arms and carry them to God. 
Amidst the troubled politics of the times, Habakkuk wrestled with a twofold problem. Now, this is important. Pay extra close attention to this. Number one was this. Why did God allow the wickedness in his homeland to continue? And even more perplexing, number two is this. How could God allow his nation, unrighteous though it was, to be punished by an, an even more unrighteous nation? The Babylonians were worse than the Jews. Faced with this seemingly insolvable problem, Habakkuk wisely took the matter to God. Other prophets addressed themselves to Israel, Judah, Nineveh, or Edom, whereas Habakkuk addressed himself to God. The answer to the problem was that once the unrighteous instrument had served his purpose, God would destroy it too. As we learn from history, the Babylonian Empire would barely survive 70 years. And so there's basically two things that Habakkuk is struggling with. Why does God allow sin to continue in the lives of his people? And then the second issue that must be addressed is if God's going to judge his people, why would he use as unrighteous of an instrument as the Babylonian Empire? I mean, they were just as wicked as you could be, as wicked as you could get. And yet God uses them to punish his own people, the apple of his eye, the crown jewel of his treasury, the nation of Judah. And so it's it's with those two thoughts in mind that the book of Habakkuk is occupied. Uh, there are basically three portions, and they're divided within the three chapters uh, as such. You see in the first chapter, the prophet wondering and worrying. And basically you see him in trouble and trial and turmoil, He's struggling with these truths and these concepts. And then in chapter 2, you see the prophet watching and waiting. He then takes a moment and waits for God to give him an answer. And then finally in chapter 3, you see the prophet worshiping and witnessing. He gets his answer from God, and it changes his outlook on things. Now let me say that this, this little book is more important than just an academic or theological study. Because it really grips the very issue that most of us struggle with, which is this. What do we do when we don't understand God? Now, I don't know about you, but there's times in my life when I can't figure God out. I don't understand what he's doing. He's not doing things the way I would do them or would wish they would be accomplished. Uh, but even in those times, he's still God and I'm still not. Amen? And so I've got to find a way to deal with that. Uh, shallow Christianity would dismiss and ignore these issues, would just have a, an empty uh, optimism that, that ignores problems. But uh, G. Campbell Morgan said this, and I thought this was an interesting quote, uh, said this, that, that people of faith are always people of problems. Because if you really believe what the Bible teaches about God, and you really believe the Word of God, there's going to sometimes be some things that you don't understand when you look around. You have this same issue in the life of Job. When Job uh, lost everything that he had, and then his friends came along, you know, and uh, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And they came along to fix his problems. And uh, they didn't tell Job anything that Job didn't already know. Uh, but Job's main problem was he, he couldn't get his mind around what God was doing, and, and he felt like he couldn't get to God. He said, oh, that I might find him, that I might plead my cause before him. 
And uh, that's Job's main struggle. In the 73rd Psalm, we have another uh, time like that with a man by the name of Asaph. Asaph was, uh, we believe, the, the leader of the temple choir. I mean, the, the thousands of people that would uh, sing together and worship there at the temple in Jerusalem. And he is the leader of that temple choir. And in Psalm 73, he's uttering the very secret issues of his heart. And he talks about how that uh, the wicked seem to prosper and the unrighteous seem to perish. And he says that, you know, I thought to speak this out loud, but it was too painful for me. In other words, he said, if I had told people what I was really thinking, they would have branded me a heretic. And uh, it's sad that we have to keep up appearances like that. But that's the reality in most church situations. If we uttered what we really thought sometimes, and that's me, just like it's you, they'd run us out of the church on a pole. And uh, Asaph is struggling with with this issue, and he goes into the sanctuary, and there God shows him the reality of the situation. That what he saw was true, but it wasn't complete. He saw the wicked prospering, but he couldn't see their end. God showed uh, Asaph their end and showed them that they were going to fall and God was going to punish them and destroy them. And so Habakkuk is dealing with the same sort of crisis of faith, if we can call it that. And it's with that in mind that we begin. Let's, let's look at verse number 1. The Bible says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Now these are Habakkuk's words, not to say that they're not God's words, but, but it's him speaking. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou will not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Now Habakkuk is looking around at the nation of Judah. And he's praying and asking God why God is allowing sin to continue in this nation. Now, uh, let me just say there's a tendency to sort of look at Habakkuk like he's foolish. And God is uh, <coughs> going to put him on the spot here in a moment, and he's going to talk about all the things that he's done and, and how he's tried to get the nation of Israel's attention. But uh, there'd be a tendency sometimes to look at Habakkuk and say, well, Habakkuk, don't you realize that God has been trying to get a hold of the nation of Judah? And yet the truth of the matter is, we fall into the same trap in the same category. I wonder how many of us have said, oh, I just wish that God would get a hold of America. Well, what do you think he was trying to do when he sent hurricanes and terrorist attacks and pestilence and, and all of these things? I, I mean, it's, it's not by accident that the things have happened in this nation that have happened. God's been trying to get a hold of America for a long, long time. And so God's not pleased with sin in our country any more than he was in the nation of Judah. But then there's a personal side to it as well. I believe Habakkuk was a godly man, but I believe he was a man just the same. And just as each of us are, we're human and we have sin and we have unrighteousness in our lives at times. And, and there's not a one of us that really does the best we can. We all come short and we all fail and we all fall. And so when we see God's mercy and long-sufferingness towards others, when we have a tendency to be like a Jonah, you know, you remember when we studied on Jonah and Jonah was so upset that the Lord was compassionate on Nineveh, it'd do us good and well to remember that God's shown a real good share of compassion to you and to I as well. But the first charge that he gives is this, that God is indifferent 
to sin. Now, we know that's not the case, and Habakkuk knows that as well. He wouldn't be coming to God and asking these questions if he didn't believe that God judged sin. But as he looks around, he says that the Lord is showing him iniquity, uh, causing him to behold grievance, in other words, people's sorrow and misery. He says, spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. There's problems and fighting and quarreling all around. He says, therefore, the law is slack. That word slack literally means powerless. It's made powerless. It's made weak in the midst. Now, isn't that the case in the country we live in today? Uh, the law of the land has negated the law of the Lord in the country of America, and I think probably all over the world, but certainly here. We have this notion that it can be legislated into morality. But just because something's legislated, that doesn't make it spiritual. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it righteous. The arguments that we're having today, it seems as though Christians have the notion that we've lost the war for men's souls, uh, so we need to do our best to uh, fight for men's statutes. And uh, rather than trying to reach people with the gospel, we're instead uh, spending all of our time at town hall meetings and uh, supporting political candidates and, and trying through the law of the land to, to give power to the law of the Lord. But that's not how it works. It didn't work that way in the nation of Judah. You see, when there's not a will to follow God, there won't be people following God. You can't legislate people into relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm not opposed to electing Christian leaders. We ought to elect Christian leaders. I'm not opposed to letting our voice be heard. Uh, but understand that you'll never, through, through law, stem the tide of iniquity. What men truly want to do, if they can't do it legally, they'll do it illegally. And outlawing something, I promise you, I'm not, I'm not up here lobbying for them to, you know, legalize pot or something, amen, but, but just because they make it illegal, that doesn't stop men from doing it. God has to grip a person's heart to rein in their actions and their lives. And so they had made the law of the Lord slack. They had made it powerless. He says this, and judgment doth never go forth. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? You know, we watch the news and, and you see the awful things that, that people get away with. And you see society. Sometimes I'll be driving, driving down the road and, and I, I'll see somebody do something stupid. I don't ever do anything stupid while I'm driving. Are you like me? Never. I always drive at the appropriate speed. I always turn my turn signal on at the exact perfect moment. I don't ever do anything stupid. But I'm surrounded by people all the time when I drive that do stupid things. And you ever stopped and thought this? You seen somebody do something stupid and you thought to yourself, man, where's a cop when you need one? Well, I wish a cop would have seen them do that. You say, cops don't ever see that. Well, sure they do. You know, when you're driving down the road and they got them pulled over and you're rubbernecking and staring at them, they probably did something stupid and a cop pulled them over, you know? But sometimes you just feel like judgment never goes forth. Like evil doing is never judged. You feel like the sinners are getting away with their sin. Now, if we believe we have a sovereign God, then that ought to pose a question for us. Now, I'm thankful there is an answer, and we're going to see it in a moment. But it's okay to have questions about these things. It's okay to wonder why there's so much wickedness in this world if God sits upon the throne. That's what Habakkuk is asking. Look what he says in the next phrase. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. So what does that mean? He says, seems like those that hate God outnumber those that love God. Feels like that in this day that we live in, does it not? Feels like the majority is easily on the devil's side. It's no surprise. He's the God of this world. Uh, there's no wonder that he'd have his constituency in this in, in this world that we live in. But it's easy to get disheartened sometimes 
And he says, therefore, wrong judgment proceed. Notice what verse number 5 says. We have God sort of speaking up. And this is interesting because there's no point where it says, and the Lord said, or so on and so forth. But you can tell by the language that's used that it's almost as though God interrupts Habakkuk. Uh, and he's, I mean, he's done that to me in my prayer life. He's probably done it to you. You know, you're belly aching and whining and complaining, and, and God just breaks in the midst of it because he's got something he wants us to know. And Habakkuk is saying, all these things are going wrong, Lord. Nobody's getting punished, and you're making me watch this. And the Lord booms his voice and says this, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously. Now let's pause and examine that for a moment. It's really easy to skip over that for the next phrase, because the, the next phrase in verse number 5 is really powerful. But stop and think about what he's just said and what's just happened. In Habakkuk's lifetime, very likely, he has seen the great Assyrian Empire fall, an empire that, that men swore by their very children would never fall. The world power that was sitting at rest, that, that had fortresses and, and places of, of security all over the Middle East, the most vicious uh, empire that probably ever existed in all of humanity's history, there was no chance. You remember in the book of Nahum, when Nahum gives his prophecy, we talked about how that at that time there was no hint that Assyria was going to fall. People probably laughed at Nahum when he said that. But in Habakkuk's time, he's seen that great empire fall and a new empire rise. In other words, what God says is this. If you'll stop and look for a moment, you can see that I am working in the midst of what's going on. Now, let's stop and plug that into today, 2015. It is 15, right? Okay. No, 16s, we get a new president. Amen? So we're still in 2015. Hopefully a better one. But uh, stop and think about all the things that God is allowing to take place in this world that we live in. You realize, and this is something I, I thought about just back of this, uh, the Arab Spring was probably one of the most pivotal events in human history ever to take place. And you and I have lived through that. And sometimes because it's not happening happening in our in our backyard, it's not something that's that's significant. But when you literally saw Arab nations, uh, you know, rising up and overthrowing dictators, and then began to see the Islamic State move in and take control of those regions, and sort of a a pathway being paved for persecution for the Jewish people, I'm saying this that that I, you know I don't believe there's any signs, quote unquote, being fulfilled, but I definitely believe there's some significant taking place. I believe there are some very significant things that are happening in this world that we live in today. And just as in Habakkuk's day, when we look at the immediate, when we get real nearsighted, it's easy to feel like God's nowhere around and evil men are, are, are uh, getting away with all of the wicked doings and, and God's never going to do anything about it. But if we'll just step back and get a little bit farsighted and begin to look at the whole scope of things, we can see God judging nations, God setting up kingdoms, God moving and working in the world that we live in. And that's what the Lord says to Habakkuk. He says, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Now he's talking here about the Babylonian captivity. We see it in verse 6, for lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. But this uh, phrase is, is very interesting where he says, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. 
Now, these verses are, are used in the New Testament in, uh, I believe, Acts chapter 13 concerning the gospel and, and the work of the Lord in this day of grace. But in that time, the entire book of Jeremiah is a testimony to verse number 5, the end of Because Jeremiah spent 40 years telling the people of Judah that the Babylonians were going to come and destroy them and that they best just accept the chastisement punishment of God because if they fight against it, they're going to be killed, they're going to be destroyed, but they would not believe him. And so we find an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 6 says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. That's sort of a, an ethnic name for the Babylonians. They were Babylonians because they were part of the empire of Babylon, but they were Chaldeans ethnically. Uh, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses are also are swifter than the leopards, so God's describing the Chaldeans, and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. And that speaks of the wind that would blow out of the east, that would dry up crops and, and uh, you know, destroy things. You remember in the book of Jonah, God sent an east wind that came and, uh, and dried up the gourd, saying that when they come, they're going to destroy everything in their path, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand, and they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. What's God's answer to Habakkuk? Now, let me say this. Habakkuk struggles with this, this answer, and here's why, because this isn't the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. Habakkuk was not looking for retribution. Habakkuk was looking for revival. I know that in, I believe it's chapter number 3, he prays for the Lord to revive his work. And, and a lot of times preachers will take that. You know, you can preach anything from any verse if you're willing to twist it hard enough. And uh, preachers a lot of times will take that verse and make that a verse about revival in the church. That's not what it's about. Uh, Habakkuk is finally in chapter 3 agreeing with God and saying, Okay, Lord, I want you to revive this work in the midst of these years. I want you to execute your plan upon the nation of Judah. But... Uh, Habakkuk is is looking for a revival to take place. The revival efforts of Ju Josiah had just recently failed. We talked about that last week. Josiah had a revival in his heart, and he hoped that it would spread to the land, but it did not. It stayed confined to his heart, and it was a shallow, it wasn't really a revival, it, it was a reform that took place. So Josiah has died, and his son has ascended the throne, and there was sort of a, a counter-revolution to all that religious reform. They're living more wickedly than they've ever lived. Habakkuk sort of has the the, the, the tones and, and notes of revival still upon his his mind's eye, and he's saying, Lord, I want you to do a work and revive your people and turn their hearts back to you. And God says, that's not what I'm going to do, Habakkuk. Instead, I'm going to judge them. I wonder how well we deal with it when God's answer is different than the answer we want. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I would say that more often than not, God's answer is different than my answer. You might be you might be way more spiritual than me, and I, and I mean that seriously. You might be way more spiritual than me, and you, that may not be your experience, but that's my experience. Is that most of the time, what I would do and what God would do are not the same thing. So, how's Habakkuk going to deal with this?
Instead of answering his concerns and worries, this really brings about the second question into a more full light. How could God use such a wicked nation to judge his people? How could God not only allow this to befall his people, but also allow another nation that's more wicked than them to be exalted above them through doing this? Well, look what it says in verse 11. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend Imputing his power, this this his power, unto his God. Now, this is a statement about Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, God had ordained that the Babylonians be the instrument of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. But at some point in that process, and actually I believe we can pinpoint this moment, uh, and I think we can trace it to the book of Daniel, but uh, at some point within it, Nebuchadnezzar crosses over the boundary, of what God has ordained him to do. He passes over it and offends the Lord. How does he do this? Imputing this his power unto his God. Now Nebuchadnezzar sort of does this later on. He, you remember the, the prophecy that was given. I actually, I mentioned it yesterday morning in the, in the preaching, the prophecy that was given in the book of Daniel concerning Nebuchadnezzar, where, uh, they, he sees a dream and a great tree grows up out of the ground and, and spreads its branches all over the heavens and, and all the animals come into it and all of the, the birds flock unto it and, uh, uh, it grows to a great stature and Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that tree. And that sounds pretty good, you know, at first until they see a watcher come down from heaven. And that watcher, that angel that comes down from heaven, saws that tree to the ground. And the prophecy is that the kingdom is going to be taken from Nebuchadnezzar and he's going to be driven out like a wild beast uh, till seven times pass over. In other words, till seven years are passed up. That did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He uh, his, he was walking through the palace one day, and, and he said, See this great Babylon which I have created you know, by my hand. I'm paraphrasing, but it says, I've created by my hand and all the things that I've done. And in that moment, a voice from heaven spoke, and the Lord said that it's come to pass what I've spoken unto you. And he was struck with madness and uh, driven out of his palace, and he wandered in the fields and ate the grass of the field, and the dew of heaven rose up on him every day, and his, his fingers fingernails grew out long like, like eagle's claws, and his, his hair grew out long like, uh, like eagle's feathers, and for seven years he dwelt in madness. And at the end of seven years, and I believe it was at that point that personally Nebuchadnezzar was converted, because the Bible says a man's heart was given unto him, so he had a heart change. Only the Lord can make a heart change in someone. But what the Lord is telling Habakkuk is this, yes, I'm going to judge the nation of Judah. Yes, I'm going to use the Babylonians. Uh, you're not going to even believe that I would do something like this, but I'm just in doing it. And when Nebuchadnezzar crosses over that line, I'm going to judge him as well. So these are all the things that God tells me. And then we resume with what Habakkuk's plea is. Now Habakkuk doesn't take too too well to that explanation. And he says this in verse number 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? Now that's his first question. He says, Lord, you're from everlasting. You are not like mankind. You can see the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. You're, you're outside of time and you inhabit time. Your existence is different from us, but your essence is different from us too. You're a holy one. And then it clicks like a light bulb goes on 
in Habakkuk's mind. And look what he says. We shall not die. Why does Habakkuk say this? He remembers these two things. One, that God is everlasting. And two, that God is holy. It reminds him of the unconditional covenant promises that God made to the nation of Israel. Now, there are some conditional promises that God made to the nation of Israel. But then there are some unconditional promises that God made to the nation of Israel. And one of those is that God would never cast them off and never utterly destroy them. In fact, in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, you know, Calvinists think that's about salvation and, and sovereignty and election, but it's not. Amen. It's, it's about Israel is what it's about. And uh, Israel is a nation. And uh, Paul says plainly that God hath not cast off Israel. He's not forsaken them. Now, Israel has contributed and contributed to that account of sin debt as a nation since Habakkuk's day to Paul's day. But Paul could say with confidence, because God is unchanging, that he would not cast off Israel. And he would, though he would judge them, he would also judge Babylon. In other words, what Habakkuk realizes is this. God has a plan. God has a plan. You know, one of the great misnomers about Christianity is that to be a good Christian, you have to have everything figured out. Or that to be in the will of God, you have to have everything figured out. One of the things that I always ask whenever I, you know, I, I deal with, with a few Bible college uh, young people, and, you know, we got a Bible college in town, and, and uh, you know, I talk to them on and off, and, and one of the things, you know, you, the first thing you usually ask them is, what are you going to do? What do you believe God's will for your life is? And it amazes me that uh, kids that, that don't know how to change the oil, <laughs> they, they, they don't know how to cut a 45-degree angle on a piece of wood, um, they don't know how to, you know, flip a breaker in a breaker box. They've got no idea who they're going to marry, where they're going to live, where they're going to work, what they're going to do. They'll look at you and say, oh, I know where I'm going to be 40 years from now. God's called me to do this, 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 and this. In my experience, I've found this. Some of those kids really have found the will of God for their life. Most of them have not. Most of them have not. There's a lot of pressure in a lot of places to have everything figured out. Nobody has everything figured out. And anybody that thinks they've got everything figured out has the wool over their eyes. You don't know what God's going to do tomorrow. You can only follow him today. Now, that's not to say that there aren't things that we pray about and God gives us clear direction on. I, I believe he does that. But here's the thing. We think we've always got to have a plan. And sometimes you'll find yourself at a place in life where you just have to be satisfied to know that God has a plan. You may not be able to figure it out. But God's already got it figured out. Habakkuk can't see all the inner workings of what's going to take place. But he does understand this, that God is eternal and he keeps his promises, and therefore we shall not die. He says, O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. He says, okay, Lord, I understand what you're saying. You have sent the Babylonians to judge us and to correct us. Aren't you glad it's not just punitive judgment, it's corrective judgment? I'm glad when God judges me, he's not just trying to punish me, he's trying to mold me and shape me and correct me and, and get me how I need to be. I, I can deal with the chastisement of God a lot better knowing that it's for my good. That's what the Hebrews writer said, that afterward it yieldeth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I, I don't always understand it, but I know God has a plan, and I know it's for my good. But then that poses this secondary question. 
That secondary, okay, Lord, I understand you're going to send them to judge your people. You're not going to revive them. You're going to judge them. I understand that. But what about the Babylonians? He says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, and makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. He says, you're making the, the people of Judah like, like fish swimming through the sea that have no one to watch over them, no one to look out for them. And, and the Babylonians, they're like fishermen that are just throwing the net down and, and, and dragging them up. And, and we're just like a prey before them. Lord, I don't understand. And they're going to rejoice and be glad over that. Lord, that's going to puff them up and make them more prideful. Therefore, verse 16, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. In other words, the Babylonians, the main god that they worshipped was their military prowess. Uh, they worshipped power. They worshipped strength. And Habakkuk uh, saying, Lord, they're just going to be more entrenched in their pride. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations. Lord, aren't you going to do something about them? How many times have we asked that question? Lord, aren't you going to do something about them? We never say, Lord, aren't you going to do something about me? We always say, Lord, aren't you going to do something about them? Well, chapter number two, we have a transition. Habakkuk stops arguing and he starts listening. Uh, you know, there's a place for complaining. I know we say we ought never complain. I, you know, uh, people ask me all the time, how are you? And I say, well, I can't complain. You know, nobody listen or it wouldn't do any good. But the psalmist poured out his complaint unto the Lord. And I, I think there are times in our life when we don't know what else to do. And so we go into the prayer closet and we just need to complain to the Lord for a little while. It's not that we don't love him. It's not that we don't trust him. We just can't make sense about it. And there's something therapeutic about it. You know, or Barney would call it therapeutic. <laughs> you know, I just don't understand it. And we begin to complain to the Lord. Well, that time's over. Let me say this, that oftentimes we don't get the answer that suffices us while we're complaining. And Habakkuk didn't either. The complaining, the reason he couldn't get the answer to satisfy him was not because the answer was unsatisfactory, but it was because of his state of mind when he received the answer. Now, a lot of times when the Lord speaks to us, he always speaks right to us. The Lord doesn't waste any words. If he tells us something, and, and I always try to stress that when altar call time comes, you know, I mean, if it's important enough for God to speak to you, it's important enough for you to speak to him. God doesn't waste any of his words. If he says something to you, he, he said everything that needed to be said and nothing that didn't need to be said. He spoke exactly what you needed to hear. And so the Lord spoke what Habakkuk needed to hear, but Habakkuk didn't hear it in the right way. And it was only when he waited that he gained an understanding of his situation. He says this, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So Habakkuk sees himself as a watchman upon a tower that's waiting to hear news of the situation. This is very interesting. Verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, 
But at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Did you notice the word vision there? I thought this quote was interesting, and uh, if you're if you're on uh, the old Facebook, you, you probably saw it today, but uh, one of the commentators said this, and I thought this was interesting, that the Lord gave Habakkuk a revelation of himself, not an explanation of his situation. Because what we really need when we're in moments of doubt is a, a fresh vision, a fresh glimpse of the Lord. It's not always knowing God's plan that's going to fix it. If we can just know his presence and his person, you'd be amazed what that can do to calm your mind and to give you encouragement. So the Lord says basically about three things here. He speaks first about his truth. He says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables. He's showing something to Habakkuk that he may run that read this. Evidently, God is going to somewhat answer his questions. God's going to give him some plain truth, something that he can read, but not something of private interpretation, something anyone else can read. He's going to make plain to Habakkuk some things. Then he says something about his timing. This is important, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now, timing is an important theme in the book of Habakkuk. In fact, you'll see in uh, verse number 2 of chapter 3, when Habakkuk says, In the midst of the years make known. That phrase, in the midst, is interesting. Do you know it's found 273 times in the Bible? But this and this time alone is it reflecting to the idea of time. Every other time it's dealing with, with geography or circumstances, but in the book of Habakkuk it's dealing with a time frame in the midst of the years. And so timing is an important element in this. And let me say that oftentimes the things we don't understand about God are really just a matter of timing. You'd be amazed what waiting on the Lord will do. It's hard to do. I mean, I, I'm an impatient person. You know, I mean, I, I, I'd sooner eat, if I eat rice, I'd sooner eat it in one minute than wait three minutes. You know, I mean, I'm just impatient by nature. That's, that's how I am. And, and ministry has probably made it worse because you're, you know, ministry is sort of like being your own boss. And I don't mean that irreverently. I know who the boss is and so on. But, I mean, you've got to motivate yourself in ministry. You can't, nobody's going to look over your shoulder and say, hey, do this and do that and do this and do that. And, and so there's a lot of pressure to, to make things happen, and you get impatient in ministry. But sometimes all we can do is wait upon the Lord. Uh, we don't want to be slow and disobedient and get behind Him, or else we'll miss some things God has for us. But we don't want to be too hasty and get ahead of the Lord, or we'll make a mess of some things that He could have done the right way. And so... The Lord says, this vision that I'm going to give you is for an appointed time. Uh, you're not going to understand everything about it right now, and people won't understand everything about it right now, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. I think there's some prophetic language here too, because I think that this vision also looks forward to the destruction of the empire of the Antichrist. Then in verse number 4 we have a word about God's trustworthiness. The Bible says, because, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, the first part of the verse is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. And what the Lord is telling Habakkuk is this. Habakkuk, I know it looks like God's people are losing, and it looks like the Babylonians are winning. But don't think for one moment that I can't see his heart. 
I know who Nebuchadnezzar is. Nothing's lost on me. I've got everything under control. And let me just remind you, all the all the wickedness in the world that we always lament and moan and, and whine about, and I do it just like you do, that's not lost on God. God's aware. Let me tell you something. God, God not only knows everybody in the Middle East that's getting beheaded, but he knows the number of hairs on their head. The Lord knows. The Lord knows what's going on in this world. And God's saying, I'm trustworthy. I know what's taking place. The last part of that verse, probably one of the most famous passages in all the Word of God. In fact, it's so famous, you'll find it four times in the Bible. You'll find it first off in the book of Habakkuk. Then you'll find it in uh, the book of Romans. And then you'll find it in the book of Galatians. Then you'll find it in the book of Hebrews. And the phrase in Habakkuk is, but the just shall live by his faith. And in the New Testament, it's given to us as the just shall live by faith. But this is the mantra, this is the theme that is given to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, a just man, is willing to trust God even when things don't seem to be working out. When everything, and let me put it this way, faith knows that when everything seems to go wrong, God is still right. And we may not be able to understand that, we may not be able to see it, and we may not have all the answers. And there's no shame in pursuing the answers. But when you come up without answers, that doesn't mean God's wrong. He's still right. He's always right. If you're going to live and live for the Lord, you're going to have to do it by faith. Not just because faith is the means of God working. You know, we've been, we've been preaching through Hebrews chapter 11 on Sunday nights and, and last night was, uh, part number four. We've got one more part, but we, we preached last night on the strength of faith. And what faith can accomplish. And, and we, we looked at the passing through the Red Sea and the Rahab the harlot and, you know, the, the walls of Jericho. And I, I understand that, that without faith it's impossible to please. And it's true that if you're going to live a, a just life, you're going to have to have faith because without faith it's impossible to please. I know that, that by faith all these great and mighty things are accomplished. I'm aware of that. And if you're going to serve God and do things for God, you're going to have to have faith because of that. But can I give you a much more simple reason you're going to have to live by faith? You're going to have to live by faith because you can't walk by sight and serve the Lord. It won't always make sense. You're going to have to live by faith because you're not always going to understand some things. So you're either going to live for the Lord and do it trusting Him, giving some things, judging Him faithful as the people in the book of Hebrews did, and Sarah in particular, when nothing made sense in Sarah's life, God made her a promise that there was no earthly way it could take place. And it didn't take place in any earthly way. It took place in a heavenly way, in a supernatural way. But she believed God, and the Bible says it was because she judged him faithful. And there's going to be times when nothing makes sense, but to live for the Lord, you're going to have to judge him faithful and go on and serve the Lord anyway when you don't understand things. Verse number 5 begins a discourse on all of the sins of the Chaldeans. And uh, this is a command to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, this is part of his vision. He's to share this with the nation of Israel. And we're probably not going to deal with a lot of these. We'll run out of time. But there's basically five woes that are given. Verses 6 through 8 says, Woe to the selfish. It says, uh, uh, verse number 6, Shall not all these take up a parable against him, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar? and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. 
Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. In other words, because of their selfishness or their selfish ambition, they were going to be judged, the, the Babylonians were. Verse number 9, we see, Woe to the covetous. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. And that's speaking of uh, the great Babylonian city, and saying that that Babylonian city was a testimony and a testament to uh, the Babylonians' covetousness. You know what covetousness is. Covetousness is not desiring something. Covetousness is not even desiring something uh, that's similar to what someone else has. Covetousness is desiring something that belongs to someone else. You know, the, the Ten Commandments, the commandment to uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, well, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I guess maybe if they're identical twins, you might be able to have one at least that looks like her, but, but your neighbor has a wife, and if he's got that wife, you can't have that wife. Uh, not, not to covet, you know, your neighbor's livestock that belongs to him. It's not saying don't want cattle and don't want cattle like he's got cattle. It's saying don't want his cattle. Don't defraud him of that which belongs to him. And the Babylonians had done that. Verse number 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city with by iniquity. Speaking of their exploitation of slave labor. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? In other words, the Lord has allowed this to take place because he's going to judge Babylon. This is one of the things that he's going to judge them for. And then verse number 14 is interesting because here again you sort of have God bursting through and making a statement. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the midst of all these awful things that the Babylonians were doing, the Lord speaks up and says that my glory shall fill all the earth. What an encouraging note that must have been for Habakkuk in this vision, in this prophecy. To know in the midst of all these awful things, I mean, he went from beholding iniquity and grievances in chapter number 1, to now the Lord's given him a vision and he's beholding more iniquity and more grievances. And in the midst of all this, the Lord says, but just remember, Habakkuk, there's coming a day when all will be right. All will be right. God's going to judge this earth, there's no question. But aren't you glad there's a day after the judgment? We would be petty and vindictive people if the only thing we looked for in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was his judgment upon the nations. Now, I'm not saying there's not a validity to looking forward to that judgment, because certainly there is. But I'm glad there's a millennial day beyond that. And I'm glad that after the battle of Gog and Magog, there's an eternal day beyond that. It's not just about the judgment being passed. The Lord is going to fill the earth with his glory. 
Verse number 15, we see, Woe to the drunkards, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory, drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy Glory, for the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid, uh, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Drunkenness was the great downfall of the Babylonian Empire. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 5? The reason that the Medo-Persian uh, army was able to come in and overtake them on that night when Belteshazzar was having his uh, great feast was, was because they were drunk. They were down in, in those uh, lower caverns that were underneath the city, those great uh, banqueting halls that they had built in Babylon, and so drunkenness was going to undo them. And finally, in verse number 18 through verse number 20, we see woe to the idolaters. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. We live certainly in the day that we live in, in the day of idolatry. It's not idolatry in the making of golden and silver and wooden and stone statues, but it's in the day of idolatry in the making and building of careers and uh, the uh, making and building up of relationships. And any and everything seems to be more important to us than the Lord in this day that we live in. The Lord says, I'm going to judge Babylon for that. And then we have a final statement in chapter number 2, uh, where the Lord bursts through once more, and he closes his vision with this statement. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before it. So in the midst of this vision, God gives Habakkuk two truths to encourage him. One, there's coming a day when the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And two, right now the Lord is in his temple. So in other words, what encourages us in this day that we live in? To know these two truths. There's coming a day when we'll no longer be in the minority. There's coming a day when there will be a throne in Jerusalem, and there will be one that sits upon it. And it helps us now to know that even in these days of wickedness, there's a throne in heaven, and the God of all creation sits upon it. He's in control. He has a handle on all these things. But look at chapter number 3, and let's take a moment and and just examine this, and then we'll close. So Habakkuk has got his answer. And it's interesting because that's sort of how the narrative of this discussion, this this dialogue between God and Habakkuk ends. Habakkuk is complaining and complaining, and then God bursts forth and says, Habakkuk, I'm working, I'm doing things. And Habakkuk says, all right, I'll just hush up, I'll be quiet till you give me an answer. And the Lord says, Habakkuk, here's the answer. I've seen their iniquity, I've seen their wickedness, I'm going to judge them. And then it ends. And in chapter 3, we have something interesting. We have a public prayer and praise. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigenon. This word is only used by David in the Psalms and Habakkuk in chapter number 3. But it's a word, it's a musical word that denoted a uh, psalm that would be sung 
at times of public worship. Not all the songs were meant for public worship, but some of them were meant for public worship. And so it's almost like Habakkuk gets to go back and, and put a psalm in with the rest of the psalms that are given. And this is how it goes. We see in the first two verses that Habakkuk prays to the Lord. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. He prays to the Lord and he understands that God's purpose, that, that the wheel of God's judgment and his sovereignty will continue to roll. But it is that God has mercy in the midst of all of it. And I know this maybe is a little bit more practical application than it is proper exegesis, but let me just say this tonight, that we don't need to lose our compassion. We don't need to lose our compassion. I want God to judge evildoers. I don't think it's wrong to want God to judge evildoers. But we need to be careful lest we become like a Jonah and get to the place where we'd rather see him destroyed than, than saved. So Habakkuk says, Lord, revive thy work. In the midst of the years, make known. Then we have sort of a poem that Habakkuk gives us in the next few verses. Verses 3 to 15, we see that Habakkuk ponders God's ways. It says, God came from Teman, which is a name for Edom, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And that's uh, south on the other side. Uh, Edom, of course, is on the east, and and Paran is a name for the Sinai Peninsula, which is at the southwest of Israel. And Habakkuk is, is giving us a poem about the day when the Lord returns in power and in glory. And it sort of jumps uh, themes several times, so you've got to pay attention. Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. So he's speaking about the millennial kingdom. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. Horns denote power in the word of God. And there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. That probably deals with the uh, the things that are going to take place during the tribulation. So Habakkuk sees the Lord coming in judgment. He stood and measured the earth. Now, you don't measure something unless it, it belongs to you for the most part. And, uh, so, you know, some of you, when you bought a house, one of the first things you did, you ladies, after you bought it, you went in and started measuring the windows because you was going to put drapes and curtains and blinds up, things like that. Uh, typically, if you if you were to go out and find somebody sizing up your car, you'd probably be a little leery-eyed at them. You'd say, that's not your car. Get away from it. But the Lord is measuring the earth because it belongs to him. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan, which is another name for Ethiopia, in affliction. And the curtains of the land of Midian. Uh, Midian is on the eastern side, on the opposite side of Ethiopia. So what does he see? You, have you noticed this? He sees the Lord coming from Teman on the east, and then Paran on the west, and then he sees the tents of Cushan on the west and the land of Midian on the east. He's speaking about the full scope of God's judgment in that part of the earth. It says, Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? And, uh, you know, oftentimes in the Bible, bodies of water are 
uh, symbolic language for great people groups. And so it's speaking about his judgment against the nations in that day. Thy bow was made quite naked. Well, what does that mean? The bow was made quite naked. Well, the only dressing you've got for a bow is an arrow. So saying that your bow was shot, the judgment has flown. According to the oaths of the tribes, even thy words say law. That's the tribes of the nation of Israel. God's kept his promises. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. Habakkuk begins to look backward at some of the things that God has done in the past. And there's several instances in the Bible that verse 10 could be referring to. Verse 11 is uh, probably a little bit clearer as to which instance it's talking about when it says, The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. You remember when Joshua went out, I believe, against the Amalekites, and the sun stood still. Verse 12, Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger, speaking of when they conquered the promised land. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head of the house out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. I, I sort of believe that may be talking about their exodus from Egypt, and when it speaks about wounding the head of the house, uh, the head out of the house of the wicked, it's speaking of even Pharaoh's house being touched by the death angel. Verse 14, Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Uh, their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Here we have another glimpse of uh, the battle of Armageddon. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses uh, through the heap of great waters. I understand that's some poetic language, but at the end of the day, what is Habakkuk describing? He's describing the Lord coming in judgment and working. And he says, I see and I understand now that God's doing a work, that God has always worked, and that he's still working. But these last few verses, we see that Habakkuk praises God. When I heard, Habakkuk says, speaking of that vision, when I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops, speaking of Babylon. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says, I see the land of Judah laid waste before me. There's no cattle in the stalls, there's no vines, uh, figs on, uh, you know, in the trees, there's no grapes on the vines, there's no crops in the field. It's about as bad as it can get, but he says, now that I understand who God is, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, like deer's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Let me say this in closing, and we'll pray and be done. After Habakkuk got a fresh glimpse of the Lord, his circumstances didn't change, but his spirit did. Nothing was different for Habakkuk. In fact, when you go from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 3, Nothing has changed according to God's plan and God's purposes. 
the, uh, Habakkuk didn't intercede for the nation of Israel and prevent their captivity and their exile into Babylon. Nothing changed except Habakkuk. Habakkuk changed. He learned that if we let the Lord be our joy and our song, then we'll always have joy and we'll always have a song to sing. If you learn to be satisfied with the Lord, you'll always be satisfied. If you learn to make Him enough, you'll always have enough. If you let Him be that which sustains you, then you'll always be sustained. None of us like bad circumstances. I don't, and I don't guess you do either. But the reality is that God is the God of all of our circumstances, not just the pleasant ones. And nothing that's happened in your life takes God by surprise. Uh, Like one old commentator said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? There's nothing new in your life. You may wake up tomorrow to find your life in pieces, and it won't surprise God. He's already been through it. He's already got a plan for it. We can have confidence in the God of heaven. When we don't have all the answers, we have him who is the answer. And in him we have all the answers that we need in who he is and in what he's done for us and what he will do.